Well, I'm very, very happy that uh, so many of you choose this quiet, reflective option for spending New Year's Eve uh, with us here in the monastery. It's because there are many other ways of spending the last day of the year and the first moments of the new year and that we as a community want to meet together and sit together, reflect together on things that really matter. That, that's very gladdening. And many of you... I expect would have also by now received our New Year's greeting card. Those of you that didn't, Happy New Year all the same. On the card each year we send out, there's a Dhammapada verse, and this year the verse we ended up with was verse uh, 258, I think which says those who speak much are not necessarily possessed of wisdom. And the wise can be seen to be at peace with life and free from all enmity and fear. And I was looking at this card a few days ago and wondering just why we settled on that verse. Why, why do we send that out? And I think there's 423 verses in the Dhammapada and a lot of them are much more uplifting and inspiring than that one. And I I confess I couldn't quite remember what it was about that verse that meant that we selected it to send out to everybody for the new year. However, there is there's certainly one aspect of it which really stands out to me and that is this tendency we have to be convinced by the way things appear to be and that the way things appear to be is not always the way things are. And this is very much a part of our Dhamma practice to train our faculties so as to see the way things are, to see according to reality, to see accurately and not merely be contented with initial impressions or the way things appear to be and so certainly there are many very prolific eloquent teachers around sounding very confident and not necessarily altogether trustworthy and I'm not just talking about spiritual teachers also of course in the political world and the business world is one thing to be articulate and to sound confident and to sound sure but 
is what's being said really, truly reliable? And, and how do we know? How do we know? In this age of uh, ever-increasing information and comment, and how can we prepare ourselves to not be fooled? I think probably all of us would quite readily admit that we do regularly get fooled by apparent reality and that actuality is something else. And so actuality is, that's what we mean by Dhamma, actuality, truth, the way things are. And to see actuality, we really need to train. And so a lot of what we're doing here, when we sit, when we engage in the spiritual exercises, is training our faculties so as to see beyond the way things uh, appear on the surface. You can look at an ocean and see it's very tumultuous on the surface, and you say the ocean is tumultuous. Well, that's just the surface. And at the depths, actually, the ocean is pretty well always very silent and very still. And we don't know the ocean if we just know the surface and similarly to our being it's easy to see what's on the surface but all the great teachers who've plumbed the depths and done the work will tell us that there's something else deep within, something really worth coming to see, coming to recognise, getting to know So at least that was part of what I think inspires me about this verse, that to exercise care just because somebody sounds certain doesn't mean to say that, that what they have to say is really reliable. And, and let's not settle for assumptions. So our spiritual teachers help us with encouragement to develop our faculties so as to see beyond the way things merely appear to be and to see with insight. And if we don't see with insight, then, as I was saying, we settle for assumptions and act accordingly, which can be sometimes pretty unfortunate. There was an incident from when our teacher, Ajahn Chah, was spending time in this country when um, he was staying in the uh, Hampstead Vihara in London. And I don't remember where I heard this from or where I read it, but I don't even know if it's absolutely true, but sometimes these stories get a little elaborated upon. But anyway, the point of it is true. And what is uh, reportedly said to have happened was Ajahn Chah had given a talk and and, uh, there was a, a woman in the audience there who... At the end, she asked Ajahn Chah and said, you know, is what you're saying that there's something wrong with enjoying listening to Bach music? I mean, I listen to Bach and it's extraordinarily beautiful. And Ajahn Chah's response, apparently, was that, you know, listening to Bach can be very beautiful, but knowing the truly contented heart is even more beautiful. And 
this illustrates that one of the points that these teachings are, are uh, encouraging us to consider. It's not about giving up relative beauty and happiness and pleasure, but it's about recognizing that it is relative. You know, if we don't recognize that it's relative, if we don't see beyond the way things appear to be, we can think that it's ultimate. And then as a saying, we behave towards it accordingly. And sometimes that can be really unfortunate. When it's something that's beautiful and we get lost in it and, well, maybe it doesn't feel so bad. But what is really unfortunate is that if we cling to pleasure, we also cling to pain. They go together, just like the front and the back of the hand. If you lift your hand up, you lift the front and the back of the hand up together. And so it is with feelings, pleasant and painful feelings, they go together. And if we cling to pleasant feelings, then we cling to painful feelings. And if we do have a habit of clinging to feelings, getting lost in feelings, then when it is painful, it can be really, really difficult. And, and so it is with the assumptions we have about reality. If we don't train our faculties to be able to see beyond a certain surface level, a certain appearance, then we do tend to easily get lost and, and act unwisely and we assume that something that's relatively beautiful is ultimately beautiful something that's relatively pleasant is ultimately pleasant or something that's relatively painful is ultimately painful or relative suffering is ultimate suffering I can never get through this this is impossible this is too much and if we haven't experienced such unfortunate suffering ourselves we've probably almost certainly seen other people get caught in such suffering. And, uh, the fact is, it's not ultimate. The fact is, it's not the way it appears. So how do we train our faculties so as to not get fooled by the way things appear to be, to not get driven, defined by apparent reality? Sometimes the Buddha's teaching is referred to or spoken about as as jitta pavana. I was, I was talking about this the, the other evening, and pavana, the word pavana means cultivation or to bring into being, and jitta is awareness. And this is what we're about. This is why the Buddha gave his teachings. It's, it's not just the case that you're born with a certain quality of awareness and this is what you've got and you just make the most of it. No, actually, we're born with something that requires cultivation. And part of that cultivation is the training of our perceptions so that they accord with reality. Now, children, you know, their perceptions, are, obviously, as we all know, children, their perceptions are very limited. Uh, children see mummy or daddy going off to work and they get very upset and they cry and... And they don't understand. They don't see. Their perceptions are very limited. They have the impression that mummy and daddy are abandoning them. And as they grow up, they realize, oh, right, okay. It doesn't actually mean what it looks like. Just because mummy or daddy are going to work doesn't mean to say we're being abandoned. And chances are they'll come back in the evening and there's no problem. Mum and dad go to work and you don't care about them. You don't give a hoot, you know. Just so long as they come back and give you some food and you 
get on with doing your own thing again and take them for granted. <laughs> That's not talking about the maturing of perception, but that is perception changes. And so, so it is with you know, happiness and yeah, pleasure. You know, listening to Bach def- definitely can be, Bach organ music can be extraordinarily beautiful. Remember, Ajahn Punyo took me once to the Abbey in Ampleforth, and and they were having a requiem mass and playing the organ in the Abbey. There is an extraordinary thing. How how could a human being ever create something like that? Let alone play it. Isn't it an amazing feat? An extraordinary phenomena, and that Bach managed to write such music. But it's not altering. What happens if you go deaf and you can't? hear Bach music anymore or there's nobody to play the the organ and happens but the Buddha did talk about ultimate happiness which he said manifests with clear seeing with wisdom and he wanted us to cultivate our perceptions so that we're not we don't allow our vision to fall short of reality we don't simply get intoxicated by things that appear beautiful. Yes, there's no question about it. Some things are extremely beautiful. But if we fixate on that level, then we also fixate on the level of that which is not beautiful. And we can fall into believing that confusion is somehow ultimate. Confusion is not ultimate. Confusion comes and goes, just like the conventional relative clarity comes and goes. So the Buddha didn't want us to allow our vision to fall short of reality but rather to train our faculties to train our perceptions so they keep maturing not just from childhood to adolescence to something around about 24 when it seems apparently the brain has you know done its growing but to keep growing to keep developing and very much a part of this developing again the there's a verse in the Dhammapada, verse 290, which says, it is wisdom which leads to the letting go of a lesser happiness in pursuit of a happiness which is greater. So again, we're not talking about uh, relative happiness being anything other than relative happiness. But the, the, our teachers are encouraging us to exercise that particular kind of discipline that means we keep growing, keep seeing, keep learning and don't settle for merely the apparent level of perception. And there's distinct skill in this path of practice, which is not always obvious. We might think that we are going in the right direction, but we can be going in completely the wrong direction. But fortunately, we do have teachers and teachings that point us in the right direction. We can't be putting a lot of effort into something that's not really productive. And of course, most of you will be familiar with that story of the incident in the time of the Buddha where he was with a group of monks and he picked up a bunch of leaves from the floor of the forest and he asked the monks and said, which is greater, all the leaves and all the trees in this forest or this handful of leaves that I've got here in my hand? And the monks being a very discerning fellow, said, well, of course, all the leaves on the forest and the trees in the forest are much greater than the 
few leaves you have in your hand. And the Buddha said, well, so it is. The truths that I know are much greater than what I teach. But what I teach is what's relevant to realization of true happiness, true beauty, true wisdom, clear seeing. So reminding ourselves of this, reminding ourselves of the importance of this, helps us when sometimes conditions are not so easy. My way, my preferences, is that when things are not easy is to turn away from it. Like if we're suffering, if I'm suffering, I quite frankly prefer not to be suffering. prefer to change things and look at something that's pleasing and think of something that's pleasing, feel something that's pleasing. And however, the teachings, the, the Buddha gave us, is really points us in exactly the opposite direction. The Buddha wants us to understand that if we're interested in developing this wisdom that corrects our perception, our perception that falls short of reality, if we want to correct this misperception, misunderstanding, then what we need to do is turn our attention around, discipline our attention, and look directly at the suffering. Well, I'd rather not. Well, that's true. That's absolutely true. I would rather not. And that's why we need this encouragement. We need to encourage ourselves, we need to encourage each other. And remember, we're not doing it out of mere belief or even mere hope. We're doing it by way of experiment, the Buddha didn't want us to grasp these teachings and simply believe in them. You know, he held them up and, and said, try this, look in this direction and see what happens. And the, the reality is that it's through not seeing two things that you stay caught in the struggle. This ordeal that so many people find themselves in it is often not a lack of food or clothing or shelter or medicine or basics it's a, it's a mental ordeal it's a, something that's happening inwardly and the reason we so readily remain stuck in this struggle, the Buddha said it's, it's not lots of things, he said it's only two things he said not seeing two things what are these two things? not seeing suffering not seeing the cause of suffering yeah. and so we need to find whatever it takes to encourage ourselves to go against the inclination to just habitually turn away and turn towards, you know, to look. What can we do to encourage ourselves? This is the feeling of disappointment. The only reason we keep getting caught up in this, everybody gets caught up in disappointment. Everybody gets caught up in sadness. Everybody gets caught up in the pain of loss. Well, pretty well everybody. A few people have done their work, but everybody else gets caught up in it. Why? Like, it keeps happening. We're not not without intelligence. We're not without ability. So why do we keep getting caught up? Because because we don't pay attention. It's like, you know, why? Well, this room here does happen to be nice and warm and comfortable. But it could be uncomfortable and cold. And they say, well, turn the heating up. Ajahn Punya, go and turn the heating up and turn it up more, turn it up more. 
Actually, the problem is that there's no insulation in the roof. There's no insulation in the floor, and there's draft coming in through the doors and the windows. Mm. We can be busy investing, spending a lot of money and turning the heating up, but we're looking in the wrong direction. What we really need to do is turn around and look in the opposite direction. Mm. And this does take training. And Somebody very recently gave me a, a book you might have heard of called Sapiens by that Israeli chappy, Professor Harari, and he got some very interesting ideas. And, and I, was, um, I was watching a, a YouTube clip of an interview with Professor Harari, and the um, interviewer was raising the uh, possibility that in the future with the increase in artificial intelligence, that there's just not going to be enough activity, enough jobs to occupy people, and uh, how are we going to deal with the situation? Will drugs help? You know, just give people more video games and drugs. And Have you ever experimented with drugs, Professor Harari? And so Professor Harari, being a very honest chappy, said, yes, when I was at Oxford, I experimented with drugs. And, but I can tell you that drugs are just a heedless distraction. Whatever it might look like, whatever it might feel like, when we feel bored, when we feel confused, what's really called for, this was interesting to see that somebody was saying this on YouTube, on with how many tens of thousands of viewers, I don't know, Professor Harari has, they say, what's really needed is actually you need to turn attention around and look at boredom directly. That's the solution. Well, that's wisdom. That's different. That's that's not the natural inclination. We feel bored. I want something interesting to do. Take some drugs. Well, Professor Harari, quite rightly, is pointing out that following that impulse to merely distract ourselves is is feeding an addiction, the the distraction addiction that is... Probably, it's fair enough to say, it's more prevalent these days than ever before. The increased affluence and the opportunities for avoiding that which is disagreeable instead of using the affluence and technology to encourage ourselves to develop wisdom. It's almost certainly the case, that, certainly for a lot of people anyway, that this affluence is used to turn away from. And so the Buddha's encouraging us to go in the opposite direction. And it turns out that, as perhaps some of you would know, that you know, Professor Harari is committed to Buddhist meditation and of the Mr. Goenka style, apparently, and does two hours meditation every day and has been doing one month or two months retreat for the last 20 years. And he attributes a lot of his mental clarity to this particular this kind of effort that he's been making. And I'm not, by the way, endorsing all the ideas that Professor Harari is putting out there. In fact, I think it would be a very good idea if he went and sat at the feet of somebody who knows a lot more than he does for the next ten years. I think it would be very good for him to do that instead of having thousands of people sitting at his feet. But this message of when we're confronted with that which is disagreeable, that which is disappointing, like boredom, like confusion, like sadness... Can we meet it? Do we meet it? Are we inclined to meet it? Or are we inclined to turn away from it? Mm -hmm. So this is why we 
need our teachers to encourage us. Even though we might feel strongly inclined to turn away and distract ourselves, the Buddha wanted us to learn to train to turn towards, to slow down, to inhibit the compulsive distractions and get interested. What is the reality of this dissatisfaction? Really, what is dissatisfaction? Or what is boredom? If you look closely into boredom, it's not like, boredom is not like nothing happening. Boredom is a subtle form of aversion for nothing interesting happening. And when you get a handle on that, you say, well, actually, I'm really annoyed that there's nothing interesting happening. Well, there you go, there's something happening, definitely. You're annoyed. Yeah. When you get a handle on that, that's, that's interesting. Well, loneliness. Loneliness is, oh, I need some company. Do I really need company? Do I really need company? Am I going to die without any company? might feel like it, but if we get interested in the suffering of loneliness and we discipline attention to turn around the feel and the whole body-mind, this is the experience of loneliness, not just in a split-off, remote, rarefied space in our head, but in the whole body-mind. This is the experience of loneliness. Start recognizing that the reality of not having any company is one thing. The aversion for that situation is something extra that we're adding to it. We're doing that. We're active as the agents of our own suffering. Wow, that's good. That's really good to see. Because I thought somebody else was responsible for my loneliness. That's really helpful. How do we get to see that? Not because we read it in a book, but because we exercise the discipline of attention. Maybe we read it somewhere, maybe we heard it somewhere, which gives us a little confidence points us in a certain direction and then we exercise until we come to see for ourselves and once we see for ourselves that's when letting go happens and that's where we realize the benefit so a lot of the time a lot of the suffering that we feel we're having to endure is something that we're completely 100% responsible for Indignation, feeling indignant at the confusion of the world, the apparent ineptitude or incompetence of people we thought we could trust and rely upon. What is indignation? What is disappointment? It's something we're doing in truth, in reality. But an intellectual argument along those lines is not going to bring about letting go, rather an investigation training our perception, steadying our attention so we can focus on what's really going on. So meditators often tie themselves up into all sorts of knots because they don't really get this message. They don't really understand that the Buddha wanted us to slow down and turn the light of attention inwards and look at our suffering that we're causing ourselves and they busy themselves with running after happiness. Maybe if you start with a little meditation and have a little tranquility and experience a little peace and joy and and it can be a great relief and and a a real delight and uh, uplifting and 
But if we don't pay attention to the teachings, if we're not cautious, not really careful, we can become intoxicated by that delight. That delight is great. That's just like you know, going to the gym and working out and, and then you feel good afterwards. But you're not supposed to just feel good and then go and eat ice cream. <laughs> you're supposed to go back to the gym again next week or maybe later the same week. Um, the workout is work. Yes, it feels good feeling, but work is always work. And work is always work, and that's jitta bhavana, this cultivating awareness is work. We need to find ways of encouraging ourselves to do this work. And what the Buddha wanted us to do, the work, is to inhibit the tendencies to distract ourselves in the right kind of way, not in a forceful way, in a gentle, caring, consistent manner, until we start to feel for ourselves the tangle, the knot of the contracted heart of confusion, untangling. We start to feel it for ourselves, and that's where real confidence um, comes from. So as I saying, a lot of the time, unfortunately, meditators who are in too much of a hurry, and a little bit too greedy, and not really listening to what the teacher's saying they're busy running after pleasant states of mind they think that they're doing what the buddha said which is you know you read the buddha's teaching strive on with diligence but when the buddha taught strive on with diligence he was talking about the whole being striving on with diligence not just the split off little idealistic greedy part of our minds striving on with diligence Sometimes people wonder when, like, you see young men, young women coming to live in the monastery and they spend the first few years just cooking, washing dishes, gardening, painting. I thought they were joining the monastery to meditate. Well, yes, meditation is part of it. But we've got to make sure that it's all of us that's meditating. And often we join the monastery, the teacher has us doing things that I really don't want to do. And that I that doesn't want to do something needs to be received fully, fully into awareness. If that divided, stubborn, arrogant, greedy I gets a hold of the spiritual exercises and then throws themselves into it, thinking they know best, they can push themselves over the edge. And very sadly, this happens. And as more and more people are doing retreats these days, it's happening more and more often. You regularly read articles and people who come a serious cropper as a result of practicing from a place of imbalance. And instead of meditation retreats, what they perhaps should be doing is going and helping out in the soup kitchen or going to visit their parents and doing the garden for them or redecorating the house and and cultivating generosity, cultivating patience, cultivating humility. If you read the discourse of the the teachings the Buddha gave to the first Buddhist nun, Bhikkhuni Mahapajapati, the Buddha's talking about modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, dispassion, detachment... These are the qualities that the Buddha said conduce with growing in Dhamma. Mm. So when we engage the 
meditation techniques? Is it all of us that's engaging them? And these are very powerful, these techniques. Just because we've got a lot of willpower and we've got an idea of what it might mean to concentrate on the end of our nose doesn't mean to say that we're all there for it. So are we properly prepared? Do we have the subtlety? Do we have the agility to change tack when things perhaps start to become more imbalanced? Or do we just strive on demanding that we get better concentration? get results quicker. It's not easy to see that we are responsible. It's not easy to see that we are the authors, the creators of the biases that lead to delusion. To recognise a bias as a bias takes more than conceptual analysis. That might give us a sort of handle on it, but then we need to take it to another level and really feel, what does it feel like to be driven by desire to get what I want, when I want it? What does that feel like? Do we really know desire or are we completely caught up in it? And that's, again, as I was saying, a lot of meditators get themselves tied up in tangles because they don't even see desire as desire. They don't see that they're caught up in craving. Desire itself is not a problem. Yes. When we're caught up in desire, we turn desire into craving. Aversion itself is not a problem. When we're caught up in aversion, it becomes hatred. Hatred is a problem. Craving is a problem. But we're the authors. We're the creators of that. And it takes a, a distinct kind of discipline and subtlety of perception, maturity of perception, to be able to own up to that. In the last few years, I've uh, personally I've had a um, a bit of a uh, a conflict with what I thought was the way these days people don't speak very clearly. I don't know. Maybe some of you are familiar with this this particular phenomenon. We're getting a little older, and and I just think, what's the problem with the young people in this monastery? They don't speak clearly. They they don't speak loudly enough. They don't speak clearly enough, and I've pointed it out to them quite a few times. Why can't you guys speak more clearly? And, and earlier this year, one of the one of the trustees of the monastery here, who I've known for many years, and he chose the time right. <laughs> he pointed out to me. He says, "Oh, he says, uh, Lumpur, he said, uh, these people are speaking perfectly clearly. You're just deaf, and <laughs> it's uh, been this way for quite a few years." And you need hearing aids, and um, we know that this is not the first time somebody said this to you, and the trustees want you to have hearing aids. So as I say, he chose the right time, and I, I um, somehow the message sunk in. And I, But I, right up until the time that I had my audiologist results, the, I went to see the audiologist, and they plugged me into this and that, and and I looked at the screen, and, and I honestly, genuinely thought there was nothing wrong with my hearing. I just thought that they would say, no, no, you're fine. But no, it, it, it was, and there, there is. And, and uh, now I have these two computers hanging off my ears, and, and it's suddenly very easy. You know, to, and there's all these birds singing everywhere. It was, 
So there's so many birds on Arnhem Hill, and you know, where do they all come from? <laughs> yeah, and Anagaricas and junior monks speak perfectly clearly. And, well, that's embarrassing. And it, it can be embarrassing. And fortunately, that's a mundane example of how we misperceive the degree to which and the manner in which we, we contribute to believing in assumptions that don't accord with reality. And it is work, and, but it's important work. Because if we don't do it, then we, as I said, our vision falls short of reality and we, we think that some relative happiness is ultimate and we indulge in it, we get lost in it. And then we think that some relative degree of suffering is ultimate. We indulge in it, we get lost in it, and that's really regrettable. And if we happen to be doing that when we're on meditation retreat, mm-hmm. that's, that, can be, that can have very serious consequences. We can really hurt ourselves terribly. And so it's wise to prepare ourselves, as the Buddha said, it's wisdom that leads to letting go of a lesser happiness, pursuit of a happiness which is greater. Some of you might remember that book that was around in the 90s, I think it was called Magic Eye, where you look at these pages of, from what one perspective, looks like a whole bunch of just random coloured dots. And then you, they tell you to, I forget what they tell you, but somehow you, you, you adjust your focus and then, boop, there's this three-dimension monkey hanging off a tree suddenly bounces off the page. I said, where did that come from? It wasn't there before. Well, it was there. It's just that the focus wasn't pitched in the right way. And potentially it was there, but we weren't seeing it. And you adjust the focus and this, you know, or a kettle on the stove, whatever, jumps off the page and... You know, that which was an apparently random bunch of coloured dots suddenly produces this extra data, this extra image. And there's a helpful metaphor for also our inner inquiry where we learn to adjust our inner seeing. We train our perception to not fall short, to not believe in the conditioned assumptions the way that we've been programmed to see. And we get more information. And we start, for instance, to see, like as I was referring to before, that striving with diligence in the way that we were doing it, we, if, we, if we're really listening to what the teachings tell us, we find that the way we're going about doing it is actually pulling the knot of deluded selfhood tighter. Great big pseudo-spiritual me manifesting. And it's not contented, and it's not peaceful, and it's not necessarily free from all enmity and fear. Start to see that because of the discipline of attention, training perception in the right way, in a skillful way, with gentleness, with patience, with modesty, with humility.
and then experiencing the benefit for oneself, you know, the letting go. The letting go doesn't come because we tell ourselves, let go, let go, let go. Letting go happens because we see that we're doing the clinging. Only when we see that we're doing it does letting go actually happen. So pursuing this path of practice, and again, we need to regularly encourage ourselves and encourage each other, which is fortunate we have such a community as this to meet together and to encourage each other, because it does require, often it requires going against the stream of our conditioned preferences. But this is nothing new. This has always been the case for human beings. And there's an instance recorded in the scriptures of our teacher, the Buddha, when he was just not long before his enlightenment. He received a meal and he's sitting on the banks of the Naranjana River and after he'd finished his meal, he put his bowl into the river and he made this determination. He said, if this bowl floats upstream against the current, that's an indication that I'm going to realize complete liberation. And, and the bowl did float upstream. And There are those who get caught up in arguments about whether the Buddha was exercising psychic powers and making his bowl float upstream or not, or whether there were, were any psychic powers involved or not. That's not really the point. The message is that the Buddha's consciousness was no longer defined by the current of conditioning. Most of the time our experience of reality is defined by our conditioning, our likes and our dislikes, our preferences for and against, agreeing, disagreeing, picking and choosing. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's, that's why the Buddha gave us this teaching. He talked to, it's not just this binary option of being for or against, liking or disliking. There's also the extra dimension that he referred to as the middle way, which means expanding awareness, cultivating awareness, jitta bhavana, so as to be able to recognize the movement of liking and disliking, picking and choosing, being for and against, agreeing and disagreeing, to recognize that as movement taking place in awareness. Point out this is possible. Awareness can see these movements taking place. So rather than finding security in clinging to some particular form of activity, the path of right practice goes in the direction of finding security in being the awareness itself. Instead of being liking or being disliking, instead of being gladness and being sadness, being the space, being the awareness in which all these moods, all this activity is taking place. But again, this path of practice does require a willingness to go against the stream, against the current. And does require a lot of care. I mentioned earlier about Ajahn Punyo taking me once to Ampleforth uh, Monastery and we had a, um, while we were there, remember we had a very a rewarding conversation with with one of the monks there, Father Cyprian Smith, is it? Father Cyprian Smith, who's 
one of the things he's well known for is a book he wrote called The Way of Paradox, which is a commentary on 13th century German mystic, Meister Eckhart, 13th century? 15th century, 14th century, long time ago. Great German mystic, Meister Eckhart, 15th century. And Father Cyprian Smith wrote a, a well-known book called The Way of Paradox, which in the course of this conversation, it, it came out that uh, the abbot of the monastery, the late abbot of the monastery, had died with this book on his bedside table and that uh, quite a few of the monks there were, were very interested and and inspired and energised by studying the teachings of Maestri Eckhart, which, if any of you have come across them, they are very inspiring and uplifting and energising and congruent with Buddha's teachings. And, and Ajahn Punyo asked uh, this monk, well, you know, if this is the stuff that you guys are practising, how come you didn't teach it? Ajahn Punyo, as you may know, went to college at Ampleforth and they didn't teach them about the Meister Eckhart in those days and so we had a conversation about the difference between those who are on the what the Christians refer to the path of, of uh, affirmation or the cataphatic tradition and the apophatic tradition uh, the affirmers and the non-affirmers which is a different approach to the spiritual journey and and Father Cyprian Smith as I recall the conversation said you, you have to be very careful when you talk about the path of non-affirmation, the apophatic journey, because those who are always affirming reality, those on the cataphatic path, they, they tend not to get it. You know, they may be very energised and committed and engaged in their spiritual practice and making good progress, but they don't necessarily understand those who are on the path of non-affirmation or the apophatic journey. And and you've got to be careful what you say in front of people. And it's also relevant in the Buddhist world because there are those who similarly uh, talk a lot with great deal of confidence and enthusiasm uh, about goal-oriented practice uh, and if, uh, talking about the stages of insight and we sometimes get letters here in the monastery of people telling us about their, the insights that they've had and the realisations that they've reached and the degree of agility they have with navigating the various jhanas and so on. And, and it's like their spiritual credentials that they have recorded in their CV which they like to share with us. And we recently got such a letter from somebody and we wrote back and told them we don't have anybody at that level of attainment in this monastery. And we didn't hear back from them again. And, that's all right, because it's true. We don't have anybody on that level of attainment in this monastery. But also, it's true that we don't tend to be enamoured with that particular approach. If that approach works, identifying the stages of insight and realisation and, and that provides encouragement and, and support on the journey... Well, that's fine. But for a lot of people, that always affirming and striving and trying and achieving tends to trigger a lot of our old conditioning, self-judgment and greed and imbalance. And, and what works, and what works for a lot of people is 
the opposite, which is the path of non-affirmation, what I refer to as source-oriented practice, which is characterized more by trusting that what we're looking for is already there, behind all the striving, behind all the trying, behind all the wanting to be something more than what we are, letting go of the self-referencing, letting go of the ideas of the goal, but again not letting go because we're persuaded by an argument to do so or we idealistically think we should do so, but as a result of having investigated and come to see for ourselves that being caught up in wanting to get somewhere, wanting to overcome something, creates obstacles, creates more tension doesn't take us to peacefulness, doesn't take us to freedom from all enmity and fear. So, as I said, again, finding out for ourselves by way of experiment. Somebody else I was put in touch with recently had got themselves caught up in quite a, a pickle, having been doing a lot of meditation and Previously had a lot of benefit, a lot of joy, a lot of inspiration, and suddenly, through this period of intense practice, fell into the pits of hell. Just like utterly unexpected, overwhelmed with so much grief, so much terror, so much pain. Completely unexpected. Fortunately, he had enough humility, enough preparation, enough agility to be able to extricate himself from whatever this momentum he was being pulled into and change tack. Agility and humility and modesty are essential in the cultivation of awareness. the ability to change tack when the evidence suggests that's what's needed. and In this case, with this fellow, he he was telling me how the only thing that works now is what he referred to as as here and now radical receptivity. Not trying to get anywhere. Not trying to overcome anything. From the perspective of me and my way, that somehow still feels wrong. Still feels like I'm supposed to be doing something to get somewhere. It can really feel that way. But on another level, at exactly the same time, there's the perception that that's not working. And if the refuge is in awareness itself, then there's no conflict, there's no problem. Awareness can accommodate all sorts of apparent paradoxes, all sorts of apparently conflicting perspectives. On one level, I really want to do something to get somewhere. The Buddha said, strive on with diligence, and I don't want to waste my life on doing this wishy-washy, allowing things to be the way they are kind of practice. So there's that perspective. From another perspective, there's this, this striving is just creating stress, Accepting what is doesn't mean necessarily indulging. 
from the old level of conditioning, that's what we tend to see, yeah. those two alternatives. You know, like a couple of nights ago, we were chanting, as we do regularly on Saturday night here, the Dhamma Chakra Sutta, the Buddha's first discourse, and he talks in there about the two extremes of indulging in pleasure and denying pleasure or indulging in pain. Those are the two extremes, and that's the way we're generally conditioned, indulging in liking and indulging in disliking. And, but then the Buddha pointed out, there is, monks, also this other alternative, this other perspective, you know, the middle way, which is the commitment to awareness itself. Mm-hmm. Which means that, yes, there can be apparently conflicting mind states. Why can't this person get themselves together? It's all right to have such a perception and at exactly the same time to have the perception, well, they are the way they are. That's just... People are conditioned to be the way they are. They have beliefs and they have attachments and they have obstructions. I have beliefs, I have attachments, I have obstructions. We don't have to take a position. If we develop this skill to be able to go for refuge to awareness itself, to silent, spacious, just-knowing awareness instead of fixed positions. Silent, spacious, just knowing awareness. Then there doesn't have to be a problem with apparently conflicting positions or perspectives. And it's not a compromise of intelligence to let go of these perspectives. We just let them be. And then what's really good news is when something really difficult comes up, like, I just can't handle this. I can't see how I can find my way through this. I don't think I can find my way through this. That's an apparent reality. We don't know that. We don't know that this condition is ultimate. We don't know that we're not going to be able to find our way through this. We don't know that this is a permanent state that we're in. So if we have that ability, we have that skill of being able to abide as awareness to any degree then there's a better chance that we can accommodate such perceptions. Not only accommodate them, not only grit our teeth and bear with them, but learn from them. And what we learn from them is how to let go. Yes, there can be great tension, great stress even, while we're learning to hold the intensity. But eventually, if we're practising properly, it takes us to real letting go. And once there's letting go, then there's seeing more clearly which, of course, is the benefit that we're looking for. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.